Divergence, the podcast miniseries. And episode six is underway. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is the Divergence podcast, and you are on episode six of our 11-part miniseries, where we're examining Jewish-Christian relations in the early church. I am R.L. Solberg. My friends call me Rob, and I'm going to be your host as we walk through this interesting journey. So for those of you who have not been with us since the beginning, we are walking through a three-part or three-stage examination of the Jewish-Christian relations in the, in the early church. So stage one was examining the New Testament, and we just finished that last week. And we're jumping in now to stage two two, which is examining the early writings. So in this episode, we're going to sort of set the table and lay out a context for the early Christian writings that we'll be walking through over the next several episodes. We're going to be looking at three areas today. First is the general historical context of the era, especially coming out of uh, the New Testament writings and Christianity, what happened after that. Um, then secondly, we're going to be talking about what the scholars refer to as the parting of the ways. This was the um, the separation of Judaism from Christianity in the early centuries. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the early writings in general. And then in our next episode, we're going to be looking at the actual source writings. We'll be jumping into that. So today is going to be a historical overview. And if you're like me, you're going to find it very interesting. There's a lot of common misconceptions that these early writings, these documents, were were sort of um, sophomoric and primitive, right? So, some people assume that they were uh, composed by these uneducated men who, who kind of folded these pagan ideas and myths into whatever Christian truths that they may have learned or picked up along the way. And, you know, while there may have been some of the early writings may have fit that description, um, we don't know about them because they don't survive today. You know, the early Christian writings that have stood the test of time, they paint a completely different picture. I mean, th- there we find, or at least what I found, was a, as a humble and a passionate people that had an earnest desire to follow the teachings of Jesus. Um, they knew their scripture really well, and that includes both the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, and then what to them would have been the the new apostolic writings. So I found myself surprised to a degree, but also really encouraged by the the spiritual maturity and the theological uh, sophistication that I found in these early writings. So what we're going to do for this for this series, we're, we're just going to be focusing on the documents that speak directly to the relationship between the Jews and the Christians, and we're going to look at the documents that are dated between, let's say, A.D. 50, um, and then the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325. So the earliest of the documents that we're going to be looking at were actually written contemporaneously with the New Testament books, and they even circulated, those, those writings circulated together among the early churches. Some were even written by men who personally knew the apostles. I mean, there's a really cool story of Polycarp as a child, as a, as a young boy, going with his father to a house gathering, uh, a church gathering, and there at the, at the house was the apostle John teaching the men, and Polycarp was sitting there. Pretty amazing to think about that, that next generation, just at the tail end of the apostles, how, how would have Christianity looked to them? So cool. So during this era, as, as you can imagine, Christianity was still kind of trying to find its way. You know, they were trying to work out Jesus' teachings, especially among the Jewish Christians. I mean, it was just sort of this paradigm-shattering thing 
the new covenant, what did that mean? And the church found itself fighting these battles on these different fronts. There was persecution from the outside, but there are also there were heresies from within the church that needed to be addressed as well. So I just thought it would be helpful if we began our journey here through the early writings by looking at sort of the the historical and the social context of the culture in which Christianity emerged and found its legs. So it's going to be helpful for us to briefly survey the events that led up to this period of history and look at, you know, what were the forces at play when these early documents were being composed. And that's going to really help give us a a bit more of an accurate historical context as we then move to examine some of these early documents and and the men that wrote them. Um, So there's a a historian named Henry Chadwick. He's got a book called The Early Church, and he kind of sets the stage for us. I want to start our our look at this time period here. He says, Says this quote: The reconstruction of Israelite society after the catastrophe of the Babylonian deportation, which, by the way, would have been about 597 to 538 BC, had been firmly based on the law of Moses. So, in this period, you know, coming back from the the deportation with with really no new prophets that were out there declaring God's word, the Jews had become really a people of the book. Um, they turned to the study of, of God's written revelation of Scripture, of the Tanakh, right? So the, the scribes and the, and the lawyers of the uh, rabbinical schools, the teachers of the law, they began to supplement the Hebrew Scriptures with these extra-biblical traditions. And these are the extra-biblical traditions that eventually led to the sharp debates that we see between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, which we looked at in an earlier episode. So at the time of Jesus... The Jews lived in their homeland, and they had a temple in Jerusalem, and they even had a, a ruling authority called the Grand, sorry, the Great Sanhedrin. It's this supreme religious body in the land of Israel, right? However, Israel wasn't operating as an autonomous nation. After their return from Babylon, the Jews had continued under a, a theocratic government. You know, the priests were sort of running the nation until the Roman general Pompey conquered Palestine and took Jerusalem. And that was in the year 63 BC. And if you haven't read it yet, uh, Philip Schaff and Henry Wace have edited this amazing book series. Um, and I'm taking this next quote I'm going to read to you from a select library of Nicene and post-Nicene fathers of the Christian church. Um, and so they say this about the conquering of Jerusalem. I found this interesting, quote, Pompey's curiosity led him to penetrate into the Holy of Holies. He was much impressed, however, by its simplicity and went away without disturbing its treasures, wondering at a religion which had no visible God. So as you probably know, the Holy of Holies is this innermost sacred room of the, of the Jewish temple. So only the high priest is allowed in there, and he's only allowed in that room one day a year. So Pompey, when he conquered Jerusalem, just comes strolling in and says, I want to go look at the most holy room. And he just thinks, oh, well, that's interesting. And then he leaves without destroying anything and just kind of wondering why they would believe in an invisible God. Kind of gives us a glimpse into the outside perspective on Judaism at the time. So about 30 years later, the Romans gave the kingdom of Judea to Herod the Great, They set him up as the ruler over the Jews, which was really controversial because it marked the first time in history that Israel had ever been ruled by a non-Jew or what they would have referred to as foreign blood. Interestingly, in this historical event, many of the Jews 
saw biblical prophecy coming to pass. If we look at Genesis 49.10, and I'm reading from the CSB translation here, it says this, The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. So in other words, the Jews were asking themselves, could this be the beginning of the time period in history when the Messiah was going to come? You know, was the arrival of their Mashiach imminent? So referring again to Schaff, Philip Schaff, uh, he says this, quote, When the kingdom of the Jews had devolved upon such a man, the expectation of the nations was, according to prophecy, already at the door. For with him their princes and governors who had ruled in regular succession from the time of Moses came to an end. So for the first time since Moses, a non-Jew, in this case it was the Romans, were ruling over the Jewish people. They ruled over the Jewish homeland, and, and the Roman presence was pervasive in both law and military force, you know. However, we can't forget that Rome wasn't the only influence that impacted Judaism and therefore early Christianity. Historian Everett Ferguson, who I've who've quoted before in his book Church History, Ferguson says this, quote, Three concentric circles of influence circumscribed the world in which early Christianity began. From the outside moving in, these influences were the Roman, the Greek, and the Jewish. The pattern of growth in the early church was the reverse. So the Greek influences of this era were really evident in the, in the intellectual sphere, right? The, in philosophy and language and literature and that sort of thing. And in fact, Greek philosophy provided the vocabulary and the, the intellectual framework through which Christian theology was initially expressed. And so the Jewish culture into which Jesus was born was heavily influenced by the Greek or Hellenism as well as the Roman rule that they were under. Um, and we also need to remember on the Jewish side of things, at the time of Christ, Judaism wasn't this monolithic belief system. There were, there were various sects, and sometimes they were at odds with, the, with each other. We had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, and they were often in disagreement with one, one another over, over theological matters, and in some cases not insubstantial matters. And so it was within this sort of Jewish milieu that the Christian faith grew out of this Hebrew culture. And in fact, Christianity was originally seen as just another Jewish sect, right? They're often referred to as the Nazarenes or the Galileans. And this is kind of understandable considering that Jesus was Jewish and his apostles were Jewish and the New Testament authors, with the exception of Luke, were all Jewish. And moreover, they were preaching Jesus, as we looked at in an earlier episode, they were preaching Jesus as the Jewish Messiah promised in the Hebrew Bible. So it's no wonder that Christianity was originally considered a Jewish sect by the outsiders, but also within Judaism, the Jewish believers in Jesus considered it the natural extension or evolution of Judaism, of the Jewish faith. So interestingly, we have the rise of Christianity uh, starting, you know, with with the ministry of Jesus in AD 30 and, and moving on, and that coincided with the fall of Israel. So in this time period, in a relatively shorts, historically speaking, time period, we had three unsuccessful Jewish revolts that really kind of crushed 
Israel's hopes of having an independent homeland. So we have the, the first uprising, which we've kind of mentioned to earlier uh, in Jerusalem. We had the, the rebellion that lasted from about 66 to 73. Um, and that's where we saw the destruction of the temple that Jesus had predicted in, uh, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, talking about the destruction of the temple. That happened just 40 or so years after Jesus completed his earthly ministry. And then about 40 years later, so in the years 115 to 117, the Jews who had been displaced to Cyprus and and Northeast Africa, they rebelled unsuccessfully. And then 15 years after that, which would have been about 100 years after Jesus, we have the Bar Kokhba revolt, which broke out under the, the Emperor Hadrian. Um, And this revolt lasted from 132 to 135, and it was led by this kind of mysterious figure named Shimon Bar Kokhba, which means Simon, the son of a star. Um, And he claimed to be the Messiah, but very much unlike Jesus, he was after both political and economic power. So he wanted to replace Roman rule with Jewish rule. He wanted to to rebuild the temple. Um, so he was sort of the, the political and revolutionary messianic figure that the early Jews were expecting. And one of the reasons they rejected Jesus is because he didn't fit that, that messianic expectation of a, of a political king type figure. So with the Bar Kokhba revolution and movement, we have some archaeological evidence that suggests that they persecuted Christians, um, who they referred to as Galileans. And we also know that the Christians didn't join the Jews in that particular revolt, and nor, obviously, did they recognize Shimon as the Messiah. So it was the Jews against Rome, and amazingly, the Jewish rebels actually held out for three years before they were finally defeated by this overwhelming Roman force. And so Shimon Bar Kokhba was killed in 135, and also very much unlike Jesus, he was promptly forgotten. So the Jewish faith in him as their Messiah completely crashed. And so he went from Simon the son of a star to Simon the liar. And then after the third insurgence was put down, Hadrian issued several proclamations that were aimed at what he saw as really the cause of these repeated Jewish rebellions, which was Jewish nationalism in Judea. And so Rome wiped Jerusalem off the map. They renamed it as a Roman colony called Ilea Capitolina. And not only that, they built a pagan cult site on top of the ruins of the temple that had been destroyed 60 years earlier. So that was an ultimate insult to the Jewish people. So let's take a look at the parting of the ways. So Henry Chadwick, the historian, again in his book called The Early Church, he records that in its earliest days, quote, the church was deeply conscious of its solidarity with Israel and of the continuity of God's action in the past with his present activity in Jesus of Nazareth and his followers. And then the historian Ferguson, again, from his book Church History, said this, quote, the God of the Jews was the God of the early Christians, and the central affirmations of the early church Jesus as the Messiah, his resurrection from the dead, a new age of the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, took their meaning from Jewish hopes based on the interpretation of the scriptural prophets and stimulated by the later apocalyptic literature of the Jews. So the claims of Jesus were at the core of this conflict between the early Christians and the Jews. You know, was he the Messiah or was he a false prophet? 
And as I mentioned, this discord sort of began as just, you know, one more sectarian dispute within the Jewish community. Suetonius, who was a, an early Roman historian, wrote that during the reign of Claudius, which would have been around the year 80, 49, or 50, um, that the Jews were expelled from Rome because of agitation over, quote, Crestus, close quote, which would have been a reference to Christ. And so Claudius saw the issue as a sort of a Jewish intramural dispute. And we have a biblical perspective on this as well. So if we look at Acts 18, we see here that the Roman government didn't distinguish Christianity from the legally recognized Jewish religion. So let me read you uh, Acts 18, starting at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now in Palestine, the Christians remained a group within Judaism for some time. Uh, although they were persecuted by the Jews, and we can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. But in Judea, uh, the Jewish Christians were harshly resisted by the Jewish religious leaders. And so the rabbis introduced something called the Burkhat Hamanim, which means a benediction against the heretics. And they did this to exclude the Jewish followers of Jesus who were coming into the synagogues. Um, we'll, we'll look at another Jewish scholar here, Alan Segal, uh, in his book, Two Powers in Heavens, which is a great book. He writes this, the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel, which by the way, we looked at earlier, that was actually the rabbi that Paul the apostle studied under. So he says this, Gamaliel ordered Samuel the small to compose a benediction against the Menim. This would have made participation in synagogue services impossible for anyone identifying himself as a mean. And a quick side note here. So the Hebrew word mean, M-I-N, means from or out of, and it, and it commonly refers to heretics. And so menim is really just the plural form of that word. So the Burkat Hamanim, which is the benediction against heretics, is actually number 12 in the 18 benedictions that make up the required daily prayer of religious Jews. Uh, and, and by the way, modern Jews rarely hear this benediction because on the Sabbath and on the holidays, an alternative version is actually used today, which doesn't refer to the menim or the heretics. Now, there are, are several known versions of this benediction, but the wording of the Sidarim, which was dated to the somewhere between the 9th and 12th centuries, that is believed to resemble the original pretty closely. So let me read that to you. Here's what this benediction against the heretics reads. Quote, For the apostates, let there be no hope, and let the arrogant government be speedily uprooted in our days. Let the Nazarim, which means Nazarenes, and the Menim, the heretics, be destroyed in a moment, and let them be blotted out of the book of life, and not be inscribed together with the righteous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the arrogant. This benediction, or really a curse, is believed to have been written with, um, with several groups in view. I think we kind of see that. There's the Jewish Christians, which are kind of referred to here as the apostates. And then there are the Christians, which were seen as enemies of the Jews by the writers of this curse. And then there were the governments of the Christian world and then heretics in general. So according to the Jewish scholar Shea Cohen, in his book From the Maccabees to the Mishnah, he writes this, quote, 
Since the Jewish Christians could not recite this benediction, and presumably would have been uncomfortable in the presence of those who did, the effect of the institution of this benediction was to expel Christians from the synagogues. Scholars found confirmation for this interpretation in John's references to the expulsion of Christians from synagogues found in John 9.22, 12.42, and 16.2, and in the assertions of various church fathers that the Jews curse Christ and or Christians in their daily prayers. Meanwhile, Gentile believers now who, who felt no allegiance to, to Jewish heritage or tradition they were often unsympathetic towards the destruction of the temple and, and the scattering of the Jewish people, and some Gentile Christians even regarded the destruction as God's judgment on the nation of Israel for the murder and rejection of Jesus, their Messiah, uh, which the leaders had, had undertaken. And so, as we're going to see, many Gentile Christians came to regard the Jews as heretics and deniers of Christ. So the, the writings that we're going to be looking at in this 300-year period actually reveal, and we're looking at writings from church fathers and, and hear this, this curse, the benediction from the rabbis, they show us that I, what I think is a surprise to many people, that this clash between Jews and Christians was actually a two-way street. Uh, again, quoting from, from Cohen in his book, From the Maccabees to the Mishnah, he says this, quote, What explains the striking overlap in heresiological, which means the study of heresies, in heresiological perspective between the rabbis and the fathers? The term menim has to be thrown into the heretical pot, and its use compared in detail to heretikoi. And let me break in here. So her heretikoi is a Greek word that means causing division, and it's used to refer to heretics. We see that in, uh, in Titus 3.10. Okay, refer, uh, returning to Cohen here, he, he asks this, Could the Jewish treatment of Christians perhaps have led to a Christian devaluation of others as heretics? And there's another distinguished Jewish scholar that I read, uh, Daniel Boyerin, in his book Borderline. He says this, quote, In the Tanaitic period, which is roughly equivalent to the period of anti-Nicene Christianity, I'm going to break in here and say that is the same three-century period that we're looking at. Uh, back to the quote, Rabbinic texts project a nascent and budding heresiology, different in content but strikingly similar in form to that of the second-century fathers. In their very efforts to define themselves and mark themselves off from each other, Christian writers of orthodoxy and the rabbis were evolving in important and strikingly parallel ways. So what Boyerin's pointing out here and in his, in his whole book is that both the Jewish and the Christian side of, um, of the equation in this parting of the ways, they were each trying to sort of mark out their boundaries and understand what was Jewish and what was Christian. Um, and that gets us into this era that we call, the scholars call it the parting of the ways. And there's still some mystery about that. I mean, so exactly when or how the Jews and the Christians parted ways is still a matter of debate in scholarship. Um, many would point to the fire in Rome in the year 64 that, that marks sort of an early milestone along the way. Um, and following that fire, which, you know, it destroyed a whole lot of the city, uh, Ferguson, the historian Ferguson tells us that, quote, Nero or his magistrate charged and punished Christians for the fire. Tacitus, the Roman historian who reports the incident, did not give much credence to the charge of arson, but he did consider Christianity a, quote, deadly superstition, close quote, deserving punishment for the, quote, hatred of the human race, close quote. So this was a turning point, and, and from then on, the authorities in Rome began to recognize Christians as distinct from Jews. However, a parting of the ways 
between the two religions didn't really occur until, you know, at least the second century. There's a few scholars that I looked up. So Basil Studer says that, quote, from the socio-political point of view, Christianity fairly soon broke away from Judaism. Already by about A.D. 130, the final break had been effected. And if you recall that A.D. 130 is the Bar Kokhba revolution. And then James D.G. Dunn, Jimmy Dunn to his friends, uh, a great well-known historian, he agrees that, that it was following the Bar Kokhba revolt from 132 through 135 that, quote, the separation of the main bodies of Christianity and Judaism was clear-cut and final, whatever interaction there continued to be at the margins. And Yitzhak Bayer concurs with this. He says, quote, with the Bar Kokhba rising, the final rift between Judaism and Christianity was complete. Now, our Jewish scholar, Daniel Boyerin, he takes a slightly different view on this, and I'm going to read you a quote again from his book, Borderlines. He says this, quote, In the earliest stages of their development, indeed, I suggest, until the end of the 4th century, if we consider all of their varieties and not just the nascent Orthodox ones, Judaism and Christianity were phenomenologically indistinguishable as entities, not merely in the conventionally accepted sense that Christianity was a Judaism, but also in the sense that differences that were in the fullness of time to constitute the very basis for the distinction between the, quote, two religions, close quote, ran through and not between the nascent groups of Jesus-following Jews and Jews who did not follow Jesus. And then Shea Cohen, again, we're spending a lot of time with Jewish scholars here, but I think it's important as we paint this picture, uh, again, from the Maccabees to the Mishnah, Cohen says this, quote, what did change after 70 CE was that Jews, or at least the rabbis, were no longer as eager to sell their spiritual wares to the Gentiles. Perhaps, and this is the common explanation, the rabbis saw the growing power of Christianity and decided not to try to compete with it. Outside of rabbinic circles, perhaps some Jews still actively tried to interest Gentiles, especially Christians, in Judaism. But the evidence for such activity is minimal. So let's talk about these early writings. Uh, there's, there's a lot that we know about the first 300 years of Christianity, thanks to the prolific writings of what they call the Apostolic Fathers and the Church Fathers. And by the way, in my book, um, uh, Divergence, if you look in the back in Appendix C, I've got a huge list of early Christian writings that were dated to this era that we're looking at right now. Or go check out earlychristianwritings.com. Great resource. Through these writings, though, these original source writings, we learn a lot about the early church. We learn about the founding of a lot of different congregations that happened. We learn the names of some of the earliest preachers and bishops and pastors, um, and we even get some of their actual sermons. We, we've also got early hymns and prayers, uh, responsive readings, doctrinal statements. Um, there's even some Bible commentary from this era. So. Our modern understanding of the early Christian history is a lot more detailed than I realized when I began my research project here. Now, of course, we have to grant that some of these early writings were, um, were false gospels or false scriptures, right? But there's a book called Four Witnesses by Rod Bennett that's really interesting, and he talks about some of these early writings that would have been false gospels, and he says that those writings, quote, were condemned by the church as soon as they appeared, but this same church produced post-New Testament writings, works that, while not to be classified with the inerrant word of God, do accurately represent the character, teachings, and practices of the earliest Christians. They have all of the authority, not indeed of Scripture, but of history. 
Very interesting perspective there. And it's also, it's important to remember that there was no New Testament, quote unquote, during this era. Although all of the writings that would eventually comprise what we call the New Testament were were completed, um, most of them by the mid-first century, and then depending on how you want to date some of John's stuff, maybe by the, let's just say by, before the year 100, they had all been completed. But the official canon of New Testament books wouldn't be finalized or published together for hundreds of years. Instead, in this early era, there were individual writings and scrolls, the epistles and the gospels, that were copied and distributed among the Christian congregations and communities around the empire. Um, So early Christians, you know, for example, they would read and share Paul's various letters. Or there was a scroll that was called Luke Acts, since Luke wrote both of those. Um, And so this is a single scroll that contained both Luke's gospel plus what we know today as the book of Acts, which was called the Acts of the Apostles. And these biblical writings, these, these documents that ended up in the New Testament, they would be shared and even copied alongside extra biblical writings of the time. Now, in our next episode, we're going to actually jump into some of those writings. And obviously, we're not going to be able to do anything like a comprehensive review of all the available early writings, because otherwise we'd be looking at something like a 942 episode miniseries. (laughs) But we're going to examine several major works that speak directly to our research, our study of Jewish-Christian relations. So we're going to begin our survey in the next episode by looking at uh, by looking at two writings. First of all, we're going to look at what's undoubtedly the most anti-Jewish teaching of the period, if not of all of Christendom, Marcionism. And we're going to look at what Marcion taught and how the church responded. And then we're also going to tackle one of the two works that the scholar Shea Cohen, the Jewish scholar, considers the foremost anti-Jewish texts of the second century. So we're going to look at Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo. And by the way, the second text that Cohen lists is Melito's text called On the Pasha. And we will cover that in a future episode too. But next episode, we're just going to be going through Marcionism and then Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo. And if you're anything like me, I think you'll find it a fascinating journey. So thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you on the next episode. Shalom. Shalom.